0: We have to be mindful of the fact that we are all going to experience death. It's
1: going to come. The only thing I'd like to do is get out now that I'm able and enjoy life with my grandkids and my children.
2: Well, I think if you believe in hereafter, it's an easier process to get old and die because you have a future,
3: your spiritual future.
4: I wish I could just. Stop the clock, stop the clock.
3: There's a little black train a-coming, coming down the track. You got to ride that a little black train, but it ain't gonna bring you back. My name's
5: Jerry Harrington, and I am the mother of Nora Harrington and Addie Harrington, and the widow of Dennis Harrington, who died 17 months ago at the age of 53.
6: I'll sit comfortably, however you want. What has been the purpose of Dad's death in your life? How can you say a purpose? The purpose of a death? For the past year, I've been trying to find a way to talk about death. My father died two years ago, and I watched how death came into his life in a really sudden and urgent way. And um, it was weird because he died of cancer and pretty much knew he was going to die 11 months Before he did. But I remember when death was really close, maybe four days away, he was sitting in our living room and we were talking about death for the first time and it felt like the most unimaginably foreign thing. I wanted to familiarize myself with death. I didn't want my death to be such a crash course like it seemed to have been for my dad. So I talked to people in their 70s and 80s. I also interviewed my mom, and we just talked about death.
3: Get ready for your savior and fix your business right. You've got to ride that little black train to make this final ride. You silken barroom ladies dressed in your worldly pride. You've got to ride that little black train. It's coming in tonight.
4: I seem to recall now that it was about dying and death and uh, mortality, which is, is something that has been heavily on my mind for a number of years now. I'm 82 years old, and I'm married to a man much younger than me, and we're madly in love. What can I tell you? <laughs> This is my tea cozy. Oh, that's uh, (laughs) really creative. So if you want to help yourself to whatever you might
6: be interested in. I met Daphne at an elder discussion group in Amherst, Massachusetts. Immediately after I presented my project to the group, she came up to me and told me she wanted to talk with me. I have two
4: rooms that I rent upstairs. So he came here in 1985 to live. He only lived here six months. And between 1985 and 1993, 94, he would come by with a red carnation on Valentine's Day, send me a card. I'd come home and I'd find a bottle of wine on the doorstep, things like that, that whole 10 years. And I never thought anything about it. Well, he was a Grateful Dead fan. And when Jerry Garcia died, he was heartbroken. I wrote him a note. I said, I understand that Jerry Garcia died. If you want to talk about it, come on over and have dinner with me and we'll talk. And we set it up. And after dinner, we sat on the couch together talking about these things. He had written a poem on hearing about Jerry's death, and he read that poem to me. And one thing and another we were talking about, and suddenly he leaned over and kissed me. I was so, so amazed and surprised. I didn't know what to think. It was the sweetest kiss I'd ever had in my life. (laughs) What can I tell you? And before you know it, he asked me to marry him. So that's uh, that's why I've had mortality on my mind increasingly in the last two, three, four years. Who's
3: the
6: Who's the pastel drawing of? Between the windows
4: of the living room is uh, my husband in his Grateful Dead days. Following mm-hmm. the Grateful Dead all over the landscape. <laughs> my biggest fear is passing away and leaving him. And my biggest fear is that he'll be so heartbroken. I don't want to leave him. I'm having the best years of my life right now. But the actuarial statistics say that I will because he's only 50, 51 years old. You never give thought to somebody's dying. You never give thought to that. When you're young like you are, you think that will never happen to you. You look in the mirror and you look the same as you did yesterday, and I have news for you. Every day when you wake up and look in the mirror, it'll be the same person you saw yesterday because the change is so subtle. I looked in the mirror the other day and I saw my mother. Just her eyes, her shape of her face. So my advice to you as a young person, if there's anybody you love, family or friends, for God's sake, say what's
6: on your mind. Daphne cried a lot in this interview. I asked her if the topic was too difficult to talk about.
4: I don't know what in the world ever possessed you to choose this as the topic for your paper, but...
6: Throughout the project, people asked me if I was getting depressed by it, but I wasn't. I was fascinated by the subject of death. Not disturbed by it. In fact, the interview with my mom lasted for five hours. I sat there at our kitchen table pulling out every detail of her history with death because I'd heard the stories before, but never in the same way as she told them to me during that interview.
5: So can I tell you my history of this stuff? Please. So when I was 15, I fell in love, madly in love. He was my soulmate, I thought. and We could talk easily. We talked about things, which is not something you do back in Minnesota very much talking about emotions, just having a future, I think. That's what was surprising. Because before that, it was just kind of like everything's the same. There's no future. So when you fall in love, you feel like you got a future. And so then he abruptly died when he fell from a pile of beams at a construction site where he shouldn't have been. And that was my first experience with death. Just turned 16. Yeah, it didn't have any purpose that I could see then very, very sad. I just lost my boyfriend, and and he was my one connection to getting out of my situation and my daily routines and daily misery.
0: After Richard died, I had a terrible depression, and I was really looking at death. I was really thinking about collecting enough pills to kill myself. It's just, frankly, that's the truth. And in fact, it got so bad at one point that they actually put me into a mental hospital. Because uh, even though I had many other interests when Richard died, I was very tied up in my life with him. He was a source of uh, inspiration to me. You know, he saw beauty in many different places. And so I was dependent on him for that kind of motivation. These, this is it. I made better pictures. This one's really good. You like that one? What am I doing, singing something?
6: This is my friend Ruth, and I met her three years ago. I interviewed her for a few projects over the years, and we've become good friends. Her husband died six years ago of a heart attack.
0: I don't remember ever discussing death with my husband. So when he died, very, very suddenly, just very suddenly, like bang-o, I was not prepared at all.
6: By the time I interviewed Ruth, I was having a lot of conversations about death and recording them. And I didn't feel that much was changing in me. I was really questioning if bringing up my sad memories and the sad memories of other people was worth anything. So I asked Ruth how Richard's death might have been different if she had talked about it with him first.
0: Well, this is a bit painful. When he had the heart attack, we were at a conference on Star Island off the coast of New Hampshire. And we were, it's, we're in the middle of our morning workshops, and my brother-in-law came and said to me in my workshop, Richard is having some problems. You have to come. So I quickly rushed out, and there he was in the lobby, stretched out on a couch, and he said, it really hurts a lot, and I'm really scared. Well, I sat down, and I said, well, I'm right here, and I'm going to stay with you, and then they realized, the doctor realized it was beyond his control, and he had to call the Coast Guard, and, and it's an hour to shore, and the whole thing. And they wouldn't let me sit with him. So I really didn't... It's a very painful day, and I don't I don't want to talk about it too much, but he was scared. And I think that's an unfortunate thing. I don't know what he was scared of uh, exactly. He didn't say, but I guess he was scared of dying. If I'd talked with him beforehand, I think I, at least I could have said what I believe about something about life after death, and that this is what... The Christian faith is about, in part. Oh, I like that one. He was never quite sure that he believed all that stuff. This, I love this picture. This wasn't taken at the birthday. This is earlier with me and my little Benjamin singing happy birthday. <laughs> when another person dies, life does go on and can take a whole new form, which mine has done. And dealing with your own death, it's probably, I've got a, just a queasy feeling right in my stomach just as I said it. Dealing with your own death you probably need to talk about it still a great mystery how are you doing
6: I told her that I was feeling sad that I had brought her to a place where she had a queasy feeling in her stomach well
0: don't no, that's yeah. don't feel that way I mean you're helping people to face something that they don't want to face and you're facing it yourself and who's to say I mean I think probably it's a good thing but not pleasant
6: This was actually one of the hardest interviews, but she assured me again a few months later that our conversation was important for her and for me. Really the only interview that I didn't question or feel some kind of guilt around afterwards was the one with my mom. She knew that I wanted to hear the stories and I knew that she wanted to tell them. So the year after her boyfriend died, she was 17, her brother David died in Vietnam.
5: So then after my brother died, I knew there was no God, because God wouldn't let this happen twice. So I completely cut God out of my life and became wild, joined a band, became a rock and roll star, sang at a birthday party once. <laughs> <laughs> after John died, I still you know, felt things, but they were all sad things. But after David died, it was more like, this is it, I'm putting up walls. That was my own survival mode because I couldn't be any sadder. So then that was the summertime. In the summertime, there was always parties out in the fields, keggers. So I went to a lot of keggers. <coughs> and I ended up getting pregnant. And then a year, well, nine months later, I have a baby boy, and I'm thinking... I'm a jinx to boys, I better not keep this baby."
6: Before she gave the baby up for adoption, she named it John David after the previous two deaths. John was her boyfriend and David was her brother. It was really strange to hear my mom talk about a time in her life without God. When I was growing up, she was the one who took us to church, and I always remembered her to be a pretty spiritual person. But the truth is, I never wanted God to come up in my interviews, or the afterlife. I was interested in death's effect on our living, but God just kept coming up.
5: What I remember the most is that, um, how your dad wasn't really sure what happened after you died. What did you remember from that interview?
6: just feeling better having had that conversation, having known what he was afraid of or what he thought was going to happen. And what did he think was going to happen? He thought we all had a spark of consciousness that may be passed on, but that he didn't believe in harps and...
5: Souls. Souls. And energy. That's what he called it, an energy.
2: It seems like something's out there, but I don't think it's out there like we think it is in a... Like on a planet, someplace where we're all gonna go and be happy. It's it's a spiritual thing and it's just in the air. That's my feeling of it. My name is George Michael, born in nineteen twenty seven. I am eighty years old.
6: This is my mom's dad, my grandpa. He lives in Iowa.
2: Yeah, yeah, people say. It's so wonderful to go to heaven, but they're so afraid to go. I don't quite understand that. <laughs> when you get my age, you don't really expect any great thing to happen to your, you. Know, you just figure that one of these days is going to be your last day. <laughs> you know, it's funny, like, uh, the animals seem to know that on their last leg and they seem to know when they're on their last leg. I've seen dogs that actually go for a place to look down and sit down and die. And one dog that had cancer and he crawled in the weeds a couple times and said it was his intention to find a good place to lay down and die. They seem to know that. I suppose we do too but we probably ignore it.
6: I knew he probably wasn't going to answer it. I decided to ask him concretely how he had learned to accept death.
2: Well, I, I don't know how to explain that. I just know that something is going to happen. And I'll have to leave you, people. I hate to leave you. <laughs> <laughs> I won't see you grow up anymore. But uh, it's, you just accept it. You know, it's uh, invulnerable. Religion is a very important part of it. To me, it is, and I hope that never changes. But I do remember when I was young, my dog died. And I just couldn't accept that dog dying. I couldn't understand why he had to go. I was close to that dog when I was a child. Then my father died, and my mother died of cancer. But uh, you knew they were on their way out, so you accepted it. But the dog, I didn't know he was going to (laughs) die. And my son, too, was a hard one to accept.
1: It's going to happen, and you just got to accept the fact that it's going to happen. And when you're ready to die, die. Hello, Pat. Going down to lunch? Yeah,
3: I'm going down pretty soon, yeah. Okay, my name
1: is Arthur Lundrigan. I was born in St. John's, Newfoundland, Canada. I lived in a nursing home up in Northampton. I had a two-bedroom, and this old gentleman was in the room next to me. And I woke up one day, and I came out and got some breakfast and that, and I went back in again, and they were covering him up with a sheet. He died. So that didn't bother me. Nothing seemed to bother me. So he brought another old guy in there, and his wife used to come in every day and talk to him. So I got to know him and got to know her, and about two days later, he died. So they took him away and they brought in another guy. He only lasted a day, and he died. <laughs> this is a bad room, I said. I You should, people shouldn't bring anybody in here. I said, I'm killed them all.
6: Arthur Lumbergen. I interviewed him in a sunny room at the Holyoke Geriatric Center. And I remember that as the nurse led me down toward it, I tried to look comfortable. Every 10 feet or so, we would pass another resident, and none of them altered their faces as I went by, but all of them just followed me with their eyes.
3: Hello, Leona. Hey. How do
1: you know me? How do I know you? Yeah. I know you a long time, Leona.
4: Yeah.
1: (laughs) I don't want to die in here. I don't want to die in a nursing home. I wouldn't let my wife go in a nursing home and I don't want to die in a nursing home. Now I can't leave this home unless somebody comes here and finds me out. I like picnics, I like to go fishing, I like to go swimming, No, you know. I just want to do it up until the time I die, or until I can't do it anymore. And you can't do it here in this nursing home. I want to get out.
0: Well you've got nice company today.
1: I got the best company there is baby.
6: You know, one thing you said earlier that I thought was really interesting was that you've never really let your own death bother you very much.
1: I don't see any reason to be afraid of it. I can't stop it. It's going to come. I'm going to leave a legacy on my wife's headstone. Her name is there, at her birthday, and her date. And then my name is there, at my birthday. Down below, is they loved all their lives. And we have. My, what a lovely day. (laughs) 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 day.
5: Mary, remember the time you buried the little shrew next to me when I was working out in the garden? So it wouldn't be lonely? I don't remember it. Hmm. It was very matter of fact. That's that's interesting how you've taken the death, matter of factly. The shrew and the (laughs) dog. You were in the back there holding the dog as you went to the the vet. You weren't
6: around. I wasn't around,
5: but Dad told me you were. We're just very solid. Just kind of, yep, just like a rock. <laughs> <laughs> and then I remember coming up the next day after you you stayed upstairs with him that night. And then I went up the next day, and I knew that that was the day he was going to die. But he could still hear us. That was nice. And I know he was very glad that we were there. How do you know? Because over this la- that last year, He realized that his three members of his family were
6: all that really mattered. That was his
5: real life.
6: How did you know he felt that way?
5: It was um, the peace that he felt with it, I think. You could see peace.
6: When he was dying?
5: Or the last, last week or last few days, yeah. Wow, I didn't see peace. You saw chaos? And resistance. And resistance? Isn't that weird?
6: I saw chaos, but I also saw peace there, too. I saw a certain ambiguity, acceptance. I remember saying, we're sad you're leaving, Dad. He was in his chaotic, you know, out-of-head space, and he said, well, life is short, Nora. That's all I said. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Have a nice day. (laughs) So, Mom, after having lived this long, what do you still not know about mortality and dying? Everything. Really?
5: Yeah. What do I know about it? (laughs) That it happens to everyone. That's what I know about it. And then it's something that involves more than just that person.
6: Mom, will you tell me what we're doing today?
5: Yes. We have come all the way out from Bainbridge to take your dad's ashes to the beach and spread them there, hopefully to go out to the ocean. Meanwhile, this last year and a half, he's been sitting in the fireplace upstairs. There's no other ashes in there, just his ashes. And um, I think it's gonna be a little difficult even though it's been a year and a half. I also want to comment that he's very heavy
6: and very grainy. I don't know if death will be less surprising because I've had all these conversations about it. I don't know if it will feel as foreign as it did when my dad died, how could I know? To me now, death is not an event to make less surprising or to avoid or to understand or to put a purpose to. It's a conversation to keep having. It's a conversation that began four days before he died and keeps going now. And it's one that I hope to keep having.
5: This is where we went camping? All the time. At the very end down here.
4: Okay, girls.
3: train A-coming, coming down the track You gotta ride that little black train But it ain't gonna bring you back You may be a barroom gambler And cheat your way through life But you can't cheat that little black train Or beat this final ride
6: This documentary was produced by Nora Harrington as part of her Division III project at Hampshire College. Editorial consultants include Becky Miller, Kim Chang, and Peter Guilford. Production consultants are John Bruner and John Gunther. Additional editorial assistance by Anna Elliott, Miriam Moody, Matt Vallier, Jasmine Stein, Ariana degnan Cosmetis, Drew Goldsman, and Molly Menchel. Aaron Schneider, assisted with music selection. Special thanks to the participants of the project. Daphne Reed, Ruth Hook, George Michael, Jerry Harrington, Arthur Lumbergan, Gigi Green, Jan and Jay Stryker, Heidi Overby, Ed Toole, Halia Priest, Anraku Hondorp, Jim Casey, and Jan Saker.
3: You may be a barroom gambler Cheat your way through life can't cheat that little black train or beat this final ride. There's a little black train coming, coming down the track. You've got to ride that little black train, but it ain't gonna bring you back.